This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Beichsaurus. I'm here with food scientist extraordinaire, Ephraim Schachter. Ephraim, we're going to really get into your wheelhouse today because I am uh, able to reveal that Ephraim does work for one of the major dairy producers in the U.S. And we're going to talk, we're talking milk today. We're talking milk, dairy. So it's dairy day. I've been waiting for this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And again, you know, obviously Ashkenazim have the minig. The Sephardim really don't. We actually do not find the minig of eating dairy foods in any Sephardic Sephardim. We do find it in the, in the, Ash, in the German and French areas. And I guess, you know, when I think about France and, and those areas, that there was a very heavy dairy areas. Those, uh, those, those are very big dairy producers. I don't know if the, uh, if, if those, some of those cows were brought over here to the U.S., but I know that they are excellent. And we're going to talk a little bit later about the, uh, the excellence of some of their products, but, this is a program that is from the Yeshiva of Newark. So let's talk about what is probably one of the most frustrating things for people, and that is, why isn't Chol of Yisrael products? Why aren't they, despite the advancements that they've made? Why do they consistently fall short in so many ways? Let me just set the table a little bit here. There was a time in the United States that the Jewish communities really it was almost impossible for them uh, to have Chol of Yisrael. The halacha that you need to see a, a, a Jewish person being involved in the milking and the processing of the milk product because we were afraid that the non-Jewish person might insert into the milk product some other, or let's say from a milk from an animal that was treif, an animal that was had some sort of disease, which gets into another issue about all Chol of Yisrael even today. But because of this gazer, because of this takana, we all know that uh, there, the Chazal tell us that you have to be very careful. You have to have somebody who's there, who is a mashkiach, as we call it, who's watching it, who's making sure that the product has indeed not been violated. And it's we know clearly it is the milk product. Now, of course, Ramosha Feinstein, famously in the early 1960s, I believe, might have been the late 50s, Rav Moshe was matir for really the world because at least places that had a supervision, the local and federal officials to drink all that milk because, you know, as somebody who does work in, in the food industry myself, you know that, of course, I'm a mashkiach for Abelsenheim, and of course, which I can proudly uh, say and and we all know that uh, supervision is a part and parcel of every major food production in the United States. Ramesh was very impressed with that. And he said, because of that, no worker anywhere in any dairy would, would, would dare try to bring in some other sort of milk because of the supervision that's inherently there. Uh, what it creates, Ramosha Feinstein says, is a halacha called mirsas. Mirsas means like from the word reses, which is, I'm nervous, I'm shaking, I'm scared. And that's what we assume is going on, because nobody wants to get fired. Nobody wants to open themselves up to violations of the plant being closed down. 
And because of that, Ramesha felt that you didn't need halachically to have someone watching anymore because the situation itself is a situation where anyone working there, any non-Jew working there would be scared to do anything from the top on down. Therefore, Rav Moshe's wonderful psak allowed Jews all over the United States who weren't able to get Chol of Yisrael products to be able to basically have all what they call Chol of Stam, which I should tell you, by the Chassidim, they call Chol of Akum. Uh, they call it, you know, the Chol of, of, of the Avodah and they won't have it. Now, uh, we're talking about Rav Moshe, and I was telling you off pod that Rav Moshe, although he, not only did he give this hat there, in his yeshiva, uh, every Friday in the, in, there was in the Staten Island yeshiva and it happened in the Lower East Side, the Bachram were very, very happy because for a Shabbos treat, they were able to get Drake's cakes. And Drake's was a, a, a snack cake that had dairy in it, that had milk product in it. Uh, you'll, we'll talk about exactly, but that was not a whole of Yisrael product. And he would allow that in his yeshiva and the Bachram were very happy about it. And this is, gets to our first question. <laughs> I know from a, a, a good friend of mine who's a Rosh Koyal in Queens, who used to uh, spend as much time as possible with Rav Moshe Feinstein when he could in the summers in the summer camp. And Rav Moshe loved speaking with people. Rav Moshe was, was such a, a prince of a human being. And he did everything he could to be warm and friendly. He recognized who he was, and he was extremely approachable. Anyway, these boys came to Rav Moshe to his after davening, and Rav Moshe and his wife welcomed them into his bungalow, and they sat down. And instead of eating breakfast with the rest of the kids, they Rav Moshe offered them breakfast there at his house. So you can imagine how happy they were. And, you know, whether it was pouring into the cereal or into a coffee or something, the question was what milk to serve. So Rav Moshe had in front of him the Chol of Yisrael milk that they had produced. When the Bachrim were, and they were, you know, just, you know, young teenagers were about to have milk and the Rebetzin was going to offer them the milk, Rav Moshe said, Nein, bring the Gita milch, bring the good milk. So Rav Moshe had in his refrigerator non Chol of Yisrael milk, which he knew was better. It was better milk. Now, I always understood this because, and this will get to the question, we all have seen with our eyes and smelled with our noses that despite the dates that are stamped on the Chol of Yisrael milk that is found in the stores, it goes bad quicker. It starts to taste bad much quicker than Chol of Stam. And this is despite what seems to be Chol of Yisrael everywhere, and, and all different types of iterations, all different types. So what's the reason for this, Ephraim? Why does this milk go bad? Well, Rav, it's a very interesting question with a surprisingly simple answer. But if I may, before I get to the answer, to add to Rav Moshe's sock in a, from, from a lens of science and just knowledge of the dairy industry, there's something called grade A milk and grade B milk. Grade A milk is the only one that's allowed to be sold for fluid consumption. And the way that you differentiate between the two primarily is something called somatic cell count. Basically, if milk has high somatic cell count, that came from a sick cow that probably has some sort of infection. And if a farm mixes in their sick cow's milk with the rest, it's going to have high somatic cell count. And they're only going to be able to sell it as grade B and they'll make much less money on that milk. Who's determining that? Is the, do the 
do the inspectors come and and test the milk to see whether it's grade A or B? So it's actually the co-op that they sell into. So most farms in the U.S. sell into, pool their milk into a co-op, and that co-op sells it to its final destination. And the co-op pays the farmer based on a whole bunch of factors, fat content, protein content, but also whether or not it's grade A or grade B. And you know, I know from hearing many stories that farms that have dipped into grade B territory have soon gone out of business because it wasn't profitable for them to be selling their milk as grade B. Can, can the grade B milk be used for other dairy products like cheese or yogurt? Grade B milk is generally used either for animal feed type products or even for things like powdered milk or, you know, products that are made out of out of milk, but are going to undergo pretty heavy heat treatment. And so, you know, that's an interesting question of, of you know, whether or not someone has to be, if they're, if they're going with Rav Shechter's Chumra and they're trying to be very you know, So careful. let's mention what Rav Shechter's Chumra is. Rav Shechter, based on the discovery um, in the 80s about how so many cows had surgeries to correct what was considered a abnormality, but that, was, that surgery rendered according to many, many opinions, the cow is a trefa. And because of that surgery, despite the fact that the cow was still alive and being able to be milked, so there became this fear that much of the milk that was coming from some of these dairies was a lot worse than chol of stam, it was actually chol of trefa, which is, which is an isr daraisa to consume. So yes, Sir Schechter was, <laughs> did not, was worried, and he actually stopped drinking milk altogether. And it's interesting because I've, I've heard Rav Schechter say that this is not something he recommends other people do. It's not a chumrah he recommends others take on. For years, that's the way many people worked with Chol of Yisrael. The same way I here, you know, in, in my community will not use the air, but I won't tell my family not to. And that's just because of the extra knowledge I happen to have had or lack of complete knowledge in Ayurvind, but enough to know that I, I, I smell a problem when there is one, but I don't want to take away from others. I think for many, for years, that was the attitude. Look, I don't want to deny my kids this good milk, but now that I'm already an adult and perhaps I don't even need cow milk anymore, and you know, and it really doesn't gain much. I mean, people in their 40s and 50s and 60s whose bones aren't really growing anymore, having all that calcium-laden cow milk isn't really going to stop osteoporosis or do anything for them. For years, people, okay, I, I'm either going to have Chol of Yisrael, I won't have any milk, and I'll let my family have. But I think mm-hmm. as the Chol of Yisrael industry has grown, and I think part of it is really the Satmarov, who, as the leader of the Hasidic world, pushed all of Orthodox Judaism to the right. And, and as science advanced and as communities grew, maybe not in the, you know, the heartland where you are, but not too far. There are areas where now Holy Soil products are very, very readily available. And still, Rav Moshe's little statement in that summer camp is still the same. The Guta Milch is the non-Holy Soil milk. And that's still the case. And as you said, you had a, a simple answer. Yes. The reason why Holy Soil products often go bad before Holy Stam products really just comes down to the fact that there's a smaller market for Holy Soil products. And because of that, when you have a truck full of Chal of Yisrael products, that truck is delivering to a much wider physical radius of stores 
than a truck full of Chalavstam products would be because there are more stores that carry Chalavstam products. So in order for those trucks to be able to make all the deliveries that they have to make, they have to start delivering way earlier. What that ends up meaning is that you're going to have packages of crates, rather, of Chalav Yisrael dairy products sitting outside of grocery stores for a few hours before the store employees even get there to unload it and put it in the fridge. And although it's then cooled down, bacteria grow much more readily in warmer environments. They don't stop growing in the fridge. They just slow down. You know, a good way to think about the spoilage of dairy products is let's say you take your milk out of the fridge for one hour. The shelf life of that milk has decreased. Hmm. You can take your milk out of the fridge for 10 minutes and the shelf life will have decreased more than if it was just in the fridge that entire time. So the more time that dairy products stay out, the shorter their shelf life is going to be and the faster they're going to spoil, which is why you often see Chalavistral products spoiling before or well before their expiration date. So really, it's a phenomenon that you would probably find. Let's say you have a big, boisterous family and they're having cereal and milk in the morning. And you have one kid who wakes up at five and the other kid wakes up at six. So mom or dad brings the milk out with all the cereal boxes and the milk can really stay there sometimes for hours till the last kid is finally finished with his Cheerios or Frosted Flakes. But that milk was sitting out. So that milk, although after all the kids are finally gone and mom breathes a sigh of relief and, and you know and shuffles onto the refrigerator with the gallon of milk, that gallon of milk is not going to last anymore because it's spent an hour sitting at room temperature or two or three hours sitting at room temperature on the table. The milk isn't bad right away, but it's going to go bad quicker. So it doesn't, which is interesting because probably, you know, this mom, you know, as she wipes the sweat off her brow, will maybe open up the bottle of the milk and give it a smell. Oh, that smells still smells good. Didn't go bad yet. She'll put it back in the fridge, but she'll be surprised that it's going to go bad quicker than the milk that was never taken out. Right. right? And, you know, thankfully, those very large families tend to go through milk a little <laughs> bit faster. <laughs> so that, right. that, that might help them. So you're saying really what, what it's about is, is really not, you know, it, it is food science in a way, but it's more it's more economics than it is pure food science. You, you, in other words, anything, it's not about Chol of Yisrael that the product is made, like Rav said, it's not guta milch. The product, the milk is, is of the same quality as, because they just basically send the mashkichim there, which ups the price. Because you have the mashkichim that were there at the dairy and at other points during the process, that means that it's going to cost more. As you know, Ephraim, it's sometimes double the price. Sometimes the Chalvisrael milk, especially in places that are outside of the megapolis of New York and Muncie and Lakewood, then you can almost pay almost double the price for, for, for the usual price of, of what milk costs. Sure. But the quality, in essence, you're saying, is probably the same. It's just a question of how it's delivered. So if, if really, if everybody became Chalv Yisrael, in other words, in a utopian world, let's say in Eretz Yisrael, for example, where all milk is Chalv Yisrael, and therefore, so 
we shouldn't be having that type of difference then, right? And there it would be, uh, even though the milk is almost inherently Chol of Yisrael, it'll stay better because the stores that are, it's being delivered to are in a smaller radius and it's not staying out someplace waiting for the, the worker to open up the iron gate and to bring the milk into the back. And I've never confirmed that with anyone in Israel, but I would be interested if uh, any of our listeners are listening from Israel, let us know. Does yeah. the Chol of Yisrael products in Israel go bad? Well, like everything is, it's almost inherently everything is Chol of Yisrael because even right. the big Tnuva dairy, you know, it's, it's basically there's Jewish people that are working there and you, you don't, you know, and th- what's interesting also, of course, is that you know, when we talk about prices, and uh, in, in, in sometimes when milk was being shipped, I remember in the Midwest, places like where I lived in Chicago and in Wisconsin, there was state laws governing the cost of milk. And I think part of it had to do with the with the amount of dairy farmers, but there was something going on that 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 the price would shift based on legislation, and that of course would not apply to milk that had to be brought eight hundred miles from New York or from another place. So I think that was another reason why the costs are, are, are so different. Right, there would be the standardized price plus you know whatever needs to be added for the uh, mashkiach. And for um, the the distance that it traveled, in order for it to be as the industry terms it, the dairy industry refers to it as super kosher, as the term uh-huh. for Chol Yisrael. So they know about it. The dairy industry knows that this is. It's not just a little niche area. They know that super milk, as you say, is everywhere. Uh-huh. Ephraim, I remember, and of course, uh, you know the advancements of of the Chol Yisrael industry. And one of the things that was a very big hit in the late sixties and early seventies was. Chol of Yisrael ice cream. Ice cream. You can't get Chol of Yisrael ice cream. And I'll mention that I think the most prominent one was Klein's, but I think they're all over the place now, you know, various types of Chol of Yisrael ice cream and frozen desserts. And as someone who grew up in Memphis, you know, under the Pesachar of Moshe, and, you know, I'll proudly say that I ate, um, you know, and I ate and drank Chol of Stam. And I, for a while, I was thinking, you know, I'm not going to, you know, subject my family to have the Chumrah of Chol of Yisrael whatever I want to do by myself. But, uh, you know, I, I, I gave it and said, yeah, okay, I'm going to keep on having Chol of Stam. Now, the Rabbi Shomu, whatever type of punishment he has ready for me, I'm ready to take it. <laughs> but I have tasted both. And I can tell you that it's just no match. It's not that the, 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 the Chol of ice cream, you saw ice cream is going bad. It, it, it tastes plastic. It doesn't have the richness, the fullness I don't care whatever ice cream is. I mentioned to you off pot. I always thought it was funny that when, you know, even these off brands like that you would get that the Albertsons or the Jewel Osco that we had in Chicago, you know, and they would come up with names for their ice cream. You know, they would call it the decadent, you know, the decadent. That's that's the best ice cream. And of course, in the from world, I see Mahadrin. You want Mahadrin ice cream, right? You, right? It's always tastier if it's Mahadrin, like you had Mahadrin Ramitsuis that you should, you know, that you know, spend all this, you know, money and you know, have the this this desserts. I have to tell you, decadent trumps Mahadrin all the time. I've <laughs> tasted both. I, 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 I would want, I, I want Mahadrin to win. You know, I wanted to, I don't want decadent to win, but the decadence rules. In other words, uh, the Chol of Stam ice cream, hands down, it doesn't even come close. So once in a while, oh, this is pretty not bad. What's going on? Is it because the ice cream is staying out? Is that part of it? Or is there something more to it? 
There is definitely something more to it. I mean, these types of things can generally be attributed to economic pressures. The way things improve is economic pressure. Competition makes things better. You know, it kind of reminds me of how for years in the United States, produce was bred and developed to be robust, to stand up to weevils and, and insects and various types of bad weather. And the flavor went down because they decided to focus on one thing. And when you do that, everything else decreases. In other words, the fear used to be, you know, as was, and, and, and when we didn't know about the carcinogenic effects of the insecticide, what the consumer didn't want was any of those nasty flies, aphids, and any type of creepy crawlies in their produce that came to their grocery store. So therefore, that was what they concentrated on, was making sure it was bug-free. And and therefore, they were actually picked, a lot of the vegetables and stuff were picked at these farms before the ripening process and before they were actually able to 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 get the benefit of the sun and other things to really turn into, you know, the luscious fruits and vegetables that people have their own private gardens have. That's definitely true, but it's actually even more than that. It's that the farmers didn't want their entire crops to be destroyed by disease before it was brought to market. The farmers wanted to get to the end of their growing season and have a robust harvest. And so the farmers would specifically replant the plants that were most disease resistant, that would grow the thickest rootstock and could, you know, hold up to strong winds and only focused on growing, selectively breeding, if you will, the the most robust plants so that they could have the highest yield. And when you do that, flavor goes down because you know, and robustness, if that's a word I can use, goes up. And so to bring that, to reel that back in and apply it to this situation, just as you mentioned, you know, one of those products was decadent and that was their selling point. And if they were going to charge you more money, it was because it was decadent. And the other one of those products was Mahadran and that was their focus. And if they were going to charge you more money, which they are, it's because you're looking for Mahadran and we're going to give you Mahadran. Now, that coupled with the fact that there are many fewer Chal Yisrael ice cream companies, even today, of course, than there are non Chal Yisrael ice cream companies. And so the competitive pressure to improve your ice cream isn't really there. I mean, they know they have almost a monopoly or an oligopoly. They have this market locked down. And by making their ice cream slightly better, they're probably not going to get so many of those Chalav Stam ice cream eaters to convert over to Chalav Yisrael. And the Chalav Yisrael eaters don't really have any other options. And it's not, mm. and this is not them being evil. It's just a, a fact of, you know, how improvement happens. Well, let, let, let's think about this. The decadent or whatever brand it is, Briars, whatever you know, you pick pick your ice cream poison. But is it because there's more the, the the richness of the cream, 
the buttery aspect of the milk. What, what is it? I mean, even Briars, which of course always prided itself, all all we have is milk and sugar and cream, and like we don't have any any of these other, you know, like they would they they would their commercials always emphasized that the other brands, you know, had a an ingredient list that sounded like you were creating, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Like it had all these things, you know, dude, we can't even read what's on here. And oh, what's in Briars? It's only a uh, milk, sugar, and and you know, like only the freshest products. But even that stuff was of a higher quality than whatever was in Klein's or any of the other uh, uh, Stroll ice creams. Like, what was it? It was that they that they they didn't you know, they. What did they skimp on? I guess I'm trying to figure out. Well, there are a whole bunch of factors that go into ice cream quality. One of which is definitely fat content. So, and uh, you know, fats dairy fats expensive compared to other you know ice cream ingredients, and so a higher fat ice cream is going to have a better mouthfeel, generally speaking, up to a point, um, and is also going to be more expensive. There's this, the stabilizers that are used, the emulsifiers that are used, the quality of those, how natural they are, whether, you know, example, you're using an egg, egg yolk as an emulsifier versus you know, monodiglycerides as an emulsifier. The egg yolk is probably going to have better flavor, better mouthfeel. Most important is probably something called overrun, in ice cream manufacturing, which is how much air is incorporated to the ice cream while it's being frozen and churned. You can't have zero overrun because that would just be a solid block. That would be like if you let your ice cream melt and then fully and then put it back in the freezer, that would be zero overrun. And when you have too much overrun, it's very light and airy, but it, it loses that pleasant, creamy, decadent mouthfeel a little bit. And so some of the cheaper ice creams. And when I say cheaper, I don't necessarily mean final price, but I mean price of the manufacturer ice creams will have a very, very high overrun. But I do have to comment on the on the one point that you made about the advertising of I think you said Briars, was it? Right. Who says to to summarize, you know, you can pronounce everything on our label. As a food scientist, I have to I have to say that um Hearing people say, if you can't, if I can't pronounce the ingredients, it must be bad for me is, is such a, is such a common trend, such a popular thing to say these days. And to that, I always say, if you can't pronounce the ingredients on the back of your food product, learn how to pronounce them, (laughs) learn what they are, learn if they're bad for you. And then make that determination because everything we eat is chemicals. Every single natural ingredient is composed of chemicals that are hard to pronounce. But a tomato is composed of chemicals that are hard to pronounce. Every natural product is. And so just because there's a component of an ingredient that you're familiar with doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for you. But I digress. No, no, look, you know, all I can tell you is that when you see yellow number four or something else like that, you say like, what's that? Like, what is this? What is this? This coloring that gets introduced because to make it look more pleasant, you know, is who knows, you know, who knows what, what, what's lurking, you know, within the molecules of that, of that food colorant. And I think part of the reason why people, I, I think one of the things that, that scared people was, in the 1960s, when you had the cyclamates and other stuff that was put into uh, the diet products, which, you know, I said, you know, led to the big cancer scare. So a lot of times yeah. there was sort of like this thing, oh, you know, you don't even know what that is uh, or MSG, you know, monosodium glutamate, which was which was found almost in all these, you know, manufactured products. 
Um, and they discovered, you know, tests showed that MSG also was leading to whatever sorts of diseases. So I think that's probably what the what the advertising is about. But I, I guess what you're trying to tell me is, is that, you know, just because there there are some chemical additives doesn't necessarily mean that the product is unhealthy. Right. I mean, to me, MSG is just a component of protein and uh, plenty of proteins, the natural proteins that we contain monosodium glutamate. But when it's for some reason, when it's in natural proteins, we think, oh, uh, it's fine because <laughs> it's an amino acid and amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. You know, it can give people headaches sometimes because sometimes amino acids can like give people headaches when you have too high quantities of them. But, you know, there was a, a suit store that I think closed that my mother always used to take us to when we were growing up called Sims. I don't know if you sure, remember. Of it. course, I went there often. And can you remember their catchphrase or their... Um, An educated consumer. Yes. An educated consumer is our best customer. Best customer so yes. I would say an ed- an educated consumer is their own best health coach. <laughs> I would say if you want to make the, the healthy des- decisions about uh, what food to put to put in your body to nourish yourself, the responsibility is on you to look into those ingredients and not just oversimplify okay, well, it. Well taken. Of course, nobody really wants to take the time. They don't mind, you know, hearing a commercial and, oh, that must be the true. I just heard it on TV. So it's got to be true. <laughs> so instead of, you're right, then a point well taken. But I think what we're, what we're saying is, is that, you know, to, to summarize, Holvistrol ice cream could be as tasty and as luscious and as decadent as even the store brands, but they don't need to. And therefore the, the, the dairies, that are owned by or that section of the dairy that's being owned or taken over. Because a lot of times, as you as you know, the Klein or whatever, or Lieber's, whatever it is that's making the ice cream, they basically take the dairy over for the run. But they, it's not like, you know, Mr. Klein, you know, has this big dairy and, you know, and there's a guy walking around with milk pails there. They, for a couple of weeks of the year, they take over and they do their run. And then I think that might also be part of the reason, uh, although, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, is that they produce it in mass in a short amount of time, and then they don't come back until a couple of months later to do it again, whereas as opposed to, let's say, the ice cream that's being made consistently, you know, it, it's being made on a regular basis in a normal way, whereas this ice cream is going, is going from the dairy into the huge freezer trucks into the warehouses that these Holvistrol companies own and then being taken piecemeal from the freezers uh, and taken to the stores. So again, we go back to what you were saying before about, you know, about distribution. That might be another reason why, you know, the quality suffers so greatly. Uh, Look, um, let's talk about some area where I have discovered, and I go back here to uh, uh, what we, what we started today with France and Germany and Switzerland, and that is the Holvistrol chocolates that many people take advantage of on Pesach, because you know, you know the the really terrible chocolate which Americans eat, which Hershey's, which is known to be the most inferior chocolate in the world. So the Europeans who know what chocolate is are able to produce for the Holvistrol market, whether it's uh, you know uh, really great chocolate. And I don't think there's much of a difference at all between the Holvis. Again, the price, yes, but the quality of the chocolate between the Swiss chocolate, Belgian chocolate that has the Holvis label on it, I think is, is, is very much the equal 
of the chocolate that, that isn't Cholobistrol. So why is that? Ultimately, chocolate is a very simple product. And there are kind of not too many ways you can go with it. White chocolate, cheap white chocolate, is generally made with hydrogenated vegetable oils, milk powder, sugar, and vanilla. And that's it. No cocoa products whatsoever. And then you have a little bit more higher end white chocolate, which is made with instead of hydrogenated vegetable oils, it's made with cacao butter. So the fat extracted from the cacao or cocoa uh, pod and sugar, milk powder, and vanilla. And sometimes these have some lecithin added to them, but um, which is an emulsifier, a natural emulsifier. And so there's not really, <laughs> there's not so much room for messing up. Milk powder, additionally, doesn't suffer the same issues as a short shelf life refrigerated dairy product will when it comes to delivery because it has a much longer shelf life. And so when that milk comes out of the cow and goes into the tank, it's going to be sent generally to something that's called a balancing plant, which is going to spray dry that milk powder. It's going to spray dry the milk and transform it. The milk, it. rather, and transform it's it. It's going to transform powder. it to powder. So all you needed was the mashkiach to be there at the milking and to watch the processing happen. But then that milk powder is really the same milk powder that any uh, non-Cholobistrol dairy would have. Right. I mean, they're the same amount of days between when Cholobistrol milk powder goes, you know, between when it's from the cow to the spray dryer and Cholobistrol milk powder, it, milk rather, goes from the cow to the spray dryer. That amount of time is the same because the shelf life of that dried powder is so long that you can do one big batch of Chol of uh, Yisrael milk powder and it'll just last for a long time and you won't have to do one for, for a while after that, but it'll stay quality, um, which is... And, and that's uh, what's going to go into the chocolate. And therefore, it's going to be pretty much the exact same ingredients that go yeah. into and the same quality, the exact same ingredients that goes into the Chol of Stam chocolate. Right. And the Hershey situation is interesting that you brought that up because that can provide the illusion that, you know, chocolate is this super complicated thing. When you have a European, give a European a Hershey's chocolate bar, they'll often say, this tastes like sick. Or if they're, if they're British or, or it tastes like, um, like vomit. Yes. Um, and so, and so the reason for that was just because, um, the American palate had gotten used to a, a Hershey's, which, which a long time ago, I mean, so the tale goes, Hershey's was using milk to spray drying milk that had sat out a little bit and had begun to go sour. And so their milk powder was actually a little sour. And that's what they were using in their chocolate. And so Americans got used to that taste. And now they actually slightly ferment the milk before spray drying hmm. it. In so, order so to people mimic, should continue liking that Hershey bar, yes. In order to mimic that same flavor profile that the American customers have gotten so used to, but that little bit of 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 back of your throat burn in your chocolate is not something that Europeans are accustomed to. Yeah, and and the price differential is really not uh, it's not that extreme either in terms of the difference between you know because once you have the import price that you pay or the Swiss or German or whatever chocolate it is, it's really not that much different when it comes to Cholobistrol. So, you know, milk doesn't seem like it's going to change for a while. 
ice cream, as you say, there's no reason why it's going to change, right? The 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 chassidish kid in Williamsburg has never tasted anything close to, uh, you know, anything like that that decadent taste, and uh, therefore he'll still go for that normal ice cream. And the chocolates that might be something that, uh... unfortunately, you know, my only recommendation right now for how to go about getting the best products, the best dairy products in Chalvi Yisrael form is to find your local dairy farm <laughs> and go be the mashkiach and uh, see if you can come up with an arrangement to get some milk yourself and bring it home, make ice cream, <laughs> make great ice cream, you know, use the milk fresh or even go, you know, what's probably more realistic, go to a Chalav Yisrael bottling plant or where they actually manufacture the Chalav Yisrael products and see if you can buy it straight from there. And I bet you'll see some difference compared to the ones you get from the store. Well, I did see an article and it wasn't necessarily cheaper, but I saw that that there are a number of Sklera Hasidim who have partnered with uh, some Amish farmers in Pennsylvania for their Cholov Yisrael product. And, and there has been a, a, a very strong consensus that the milk is much tastier because, of course, the cows are, are, are very much grass-fed. They're not fed corn and other stuff. They're not herded the way uh, the, the normal dairy cow is. And uh, in generally, not only, you know, the eggs and other things. So there has been, you know, I, I think a resurgence. It's, it costs more. But in terms of taste, people are saying that the product that is made by stuff that comes from these dairies is somehow, you know, quite superior. And again, this might be another discussion about, about, you know, the, the, what is it called? The range, um, free range, the free, right? You know, the, oh, the free range, free range yeah, chickens free range. and free range for their eggs and for the, mm-hmm. for the other animals. You know, there's, you know, besides the humanitarian aspect of treating you know the things the the animals that provide for us in in a in a way that that gives them dignity and a and a greater life there's also the taste which people are saying that when they do provide for us they it seems like you know somehow uh it's objectively better in terms of taste i don't know how i know that that runs sort of counter to the huge manufacturing uh model but yeah. uh, I, I think it's somewhat in step with what you're saying. There is this idea of some going small, taking things in a smaller way and, and, and trying to produce quality. So basically, I think a frame where we've come from is that sometimes smaller lends itself to quality. That, you know, the, the less complex, complicated things are, the more you can get to natural and something great and a product. Yeah. But of course, you have to be able to afford it. But the benefits are great in terms of taste and in terms of health, et cetera. So in the same way, I think, you know, if you allow me, this program, Beichsvaris, unique, small. There's a fry and myself, and we have a small crew that's working on things, and Eretz Yisrael to make everything crisp and go. But all of that, of course, takes money. It takes money to be able to continue the program, uh, to be able to bring it to you on a regular basis. And therefore, you know, if you if you like the program, we first of all want to hear from you. We want to hear maybe perhaps your stories, <laughs> maybe your experiences with Chol of Yisrael and ice cream and chocolate uh, is quite different. 
and we'd like to hear and we'll read what you have to say and respond to you. Maybe Ephraim will even take the time out to give you a scientific response. Absolutely. <laughs> Second thing, of course, is that this program is part of the Yeshiva Newark podcast platform, which is a nonprofit organization that's basically recognized as a charity organization by the state and federal government. So you can uh, donate anything, any amount that you feel you would want to, to our program. You can contact me at ravkiv at gmail, R-A-V-K-I-V at gmail, and I will give you the details of how you can donate to the program, a tax-free donation, which will not only be greatly appreciated, but will, I think, uh, help Valshafe our future to make sure that we can continue bringing you um, more exciting gastronomical things from Baichsvaris. And as I said last time, the main thing is, of course, if you are what you eat, then consumer, know thyself. We'll catch you soon. Be well, everybody. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 